This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Alim Mahabir. Today we are joined by Professor Aisha Khan, who will be speaking on her book, The Deepest Dive, Obia, Jose, and Race in the Atlantic World, published in 2021 by Harvard University Press. Professor Khan is a cultural anthropologist whose research interests focus on the ways that race and religion intersect in the Atlantic world, particularly in the production of identities and political culture. Her work also is concerned with Asian and African diasporas in the Americas, indenture as a system of labor, the carceral state, and the prison industrial complex. She has published in numerous journals and anthologies. Her other books include Kalalu Nation, Metaphors of Race and Religious Identity Among South Asians in Trinidad, and Islam and the Americas. Welcome to the podcast, Aisha. I'm very excited about the conversation we're about to have. Thank you so much, Aleem. I want to really uh, echo uh, not only my uh, excitement about being here with you for our conversation, but to thank the New Books Network and also uh, to thank you for such a splendid introduction (laughs) that really uh, captures the range of what I've been working on for uh, some decades now. So uh, uh, I I much appreciate your attention to, to that as well. Great to be here. All right. It's great to have you. Um, you've done some really outstanding work over the years. Um, so I'm really, really interested in talking about it and more specifically um, your most recent book. Uh, so uh, before we get into that, could you please tell me uh, a little bit more about yourself, maybe going a bit beyond the introduction, some things on your personal history, your academic journey, and how you came to be who you are today? Oh, sure. Uh, You know, everybody loves to talk about themselves, so I promise I won't uh, uh, take too much of our uh, podcast time on, you know, let's talk about me. Um, But uh, sure, um, I was born in uh, what is today Bangladesh. Uh, It was not Bangladesh when I was born there. It was East Pakistan. And I came to the U.S. as a small child. And as you can tell from the way I speak, I am uh, an American. I grew up in the U.S. and think of myself 
myself as an American, given how how old I am and when I got here. But I, I grew up on the West Coast of the U.S., although um, I have spent so much time in New York. I think of New York as the center of the universe. And, um, uh, uh, and maybe I'm an honorary New Yorker, but I also like to think of myself as maybe uh, an honorary Trinidadian, uh, even though I don't have roots, genealogical roots in Trinidad, I have been going to Trinidad for research, for visits with the friends, the dear friends I've made over the years, really since the late 1980s. Uh, so you can imagine I've seen lots of changes going on there, um, as, as well as other parts of the West Indies and, of course, uh, the U.S., and I originally started out, you know, long ago, being kind of puzzled by the concept of race as it is um, uh, constructed and put into play in the U.S., which is the context that I know uh, from personal experience, at least growing up, because I sort of didn't really fit into any category. Remember, this is, you know, uh, uh, many decades ago. And there weren't uh, lots of um, options for identity categories of any kind, uh, uh, much less racial. And so I sort of felt like the, the, the term brown, which is so common today and recognizable, uh, was not uh, uh, common and recognizable uh, uh, many decades ago. Uh, and in fact, as we got to the social movements of the 1970s, say, Brown in my part of the country, which was California, really referred to Latin, what we would today call Latinx people, right? And so now, of course, Brown includes South Asians of all backgrounds, as well as others. But in my day, the you know the the categories uh, of of race and ethnicity weren't a, a kind of vibrant and common part of the uh, uh, common discourse, the popular discourse. So I never was really quite sure where I fit into this hierarchy of races that was so stark and obvious to even me, even as a little child, you know, kids get it quickly, who, uh, who matters and, uh, and who allegedly doesn't, who is worth more and allegedly is worth less in U.S. Uh, racial formations, and I would say racism. I'm not going to back away from that, right? Um, uh, which, uh, and so that kind of um, uh, perplexity about what is this thing called race uh, uh, has always been a, a puzzle, an intriguing, if troubling, puzzle to me. And then as I got older and started to see things in a little bit more, uh, I, I hope, uh, advanced and sophisticated way, I, I, I recognize that, you know, race is part of the uh, a larger concept of identity. Um, and that also made me think about identity as in its double function as I understood it and continue to understand it. What I mean by that is identity, uh, uh, whatever you can be uh, uh, talking about racial identity or gender or other, or, you know, uh, other kinds of identity, ethnicity, whatever, various you know, aspects of identity uh, can be uh, uh, presented and marshaled as a foundation for assertions of equality, right? But they're at the same time also a, an instrument through which power hierarchies and inequality are reinforced. And I became to be more 
and more puzzled in the good sense of intrigued by this double function of identity as a kind of for if, if I can put it rather basically, uh, you know, a force for good or a force for 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 not good, right? Uh, mm-hmm. For keeping people down and a force for inspiring people to make claims for equality, and so this ha- is something that I've been kind of overall grappling with uh, for a very long time, and I started. Uh, I'll get back to the West Indies in a second. I promised you I wouldn't go on too long with this. But I started out uh, kind of applying this question uh, in concrete ways with my earliest work uh, in that. And that was in Honduras, uh, um, long before the Troubles today, obviously. Um, uh, And uh, that was in 1980. I was in Honduras for several months working among the Garifuna or Black Carib people uh, and Garifuna as they call themselves. And I worked with um, uh, older uh, ladies uh, about their labor. I was very interested at that time in women's uh, labor in the informal economies uh, which was a very, uh, um, uh, you know, kind of hot topic at that time uh, for Latin America in particular, but even uh, all over the world. And I was interested in this uh, uh, to look at this with um, Garifuna women and, and and men and families, et cetera. And one of the things that intrigued me once I got there, and I was there for a long time, you know, as I said, about um, oh, about five five and a half months. Um, which is not long in an anthropological sense of field work, but it was long for, uh, you know, a master's <laughs> uh, degree student uh, who'd never been there before and didn't know anybody, right? And, but right. it was a wonderful experience. And what I noticed was, you know, the Garifuna are uh, indigenous uh, heritage, indigenous uh, uh, peoples of, of the, uh, basically, uh, originally, you know, the um, uh, uh, Amazon rainforest who traveled to the Caribbean, right? But they also have indigenous heritage in African peoples, right? So they are, and very um, uh, clearly, they acknowledge this. They, they do understand very clearly their own history, and they are an indigenous and African heritage heritage peoples. And I thought that was very interesting to look at their relationship with who in Honduras was at that time anyway, perhaps today as well, known as Ladino people, or that is the um, um, uh, people of Spanish and indigenous heritage, right? And, and, and of course, there are no exact boundaries. Everybody's very mixed all over the Americas, as I'm sure you would agree, Aline. But yep. there is, a, a, as I say, in, in, in the deepest die, even though there is, on the one hand, this uh, celebration of, of, of fabulous diversity, and we're all very heterogeneous, and we acknowledge our cultural and religious and racial and linguistic uh, 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 origins and, 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 and the heterogeneity of those origins, there's also, in the political culture of many uh, uh, nation states in the Americas, a commitment to boundaries and to identify uh, nation states in uh, in one predominant mode. So we are uh, uh, an X country or a white uh, a white or uh, black or or indigenous or mestizo, which is a category in itself, country. Uh, even though there's also the simultaneous acknowledgement of the diversity. And so I was very interested. 
to look at people who identified as Ladino, even though, of course, you know, they're, they're mixed as, as, as we're all mixed, right? But who identifies Ladino uh, and, uh, and their interactions with people who identified in Honduras as Garifuna, uh, which was their own uh, combination of indigeneity and African heritage. And so that took me uh, a little bit, my attention, a little bit away from women's informal labor, <laughs> uh, but that I actually published on that. I got that my master's thesis done and an article out on that. But that seed of simultaneity, remember inequality and oppression in identity, but also e striving for equality and social justice in the concept of identity. And then at the same time saying, we're very mixed. Yeah, yeah, we, 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 we know our national uh, heritage, but at the same time, we're X kind of a nation. You know, there are countries in Latin America, as you know, who, who really deny their uh, African heritage. Uh, and like, yes. well, I don't have to name them, but they're there, right? Uh, I'm thinking of ones on the mainland in particular. Uh, you know who you are. <laughs> so um, there's... Um, uh, 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 these simultaneities, let me put it that way, all of these kinds of apparent contradictions really intrigued me and, 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 and puzzled me and, and confused me, but also made, drew me in increasingly. Uh, and so that's kind of where I uh, uh, was trying to go with Callaloo Nation. And it, obviously I was working, it was a, a different kind of research and it's very ethnographic. The entire book is deep, you know, I was in Trinidad uh, straight for 22 months, right? I mean, I went to Caracas for one week on a little vacation, and this was 80, 1987 to 1989. Otherwise, I never left, <laughs> the, you know, uh, Trinidad. Uh, so it was a deep dive into an ethnographic evocation or, 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 or depiction, I hoped, uh, of uh, the problematic uh, that meaning the, 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 the issue, problematique, meaning the issue that I was looking at in Kalanunation. Um, but it stayed with me as this basic uh, concern with all these simultaneous apparent contradictions around identity, again, around the concept of identity has stayed with me. So when I tackled the research for the deepest die, I thought, well, you know, I'm, I'm very intrigued by the concept of identity because of these foundations uh, 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 about the assertion uh, of equality and an instrument through which power hierarchies, excuse me, are reinforced, as I mentioned. But, you know, I was thinking, and I'm drawing to a close with your question here. Uh, thank you for your patience, Aline. But, you know, I, I was thinking, you know, identity is an, an abstraction. This is a very abstract concept. And I thought, you know, it needs concrete cases or examples to be investigated historically uh, and anthropologically, right? So because I've also been long interested in the relationship between race and religion, which I looked at in, in other ways in Kalaloo Nation, and, and to a certain extent in Islam and the Americas in parts, right? I've always been interested in the relationship, particularly between race and religion as aspects of identity. I wanted to explore in this book, in the research for the deepest dye, I wanted to explore further 
the ways that they intersect, or as Kimberly Crenshaw would put it, and I did borrow from her, their intersectionality, right? And in the process, how do this, uh, 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 these concepts that are so inter intersected, race and religion, create and sustain certain kinds of identity, right? So getting even more concrete or specific, you could say, I chose to look closely at Obia and Jose, and really for this key reason, again, we're going back to this apparent contradiction that I find so fascinating. So they're, on the one hand, they're both recognized by people, that is scholars and others, uh, as representing respectively African and Indian identity, right? So Obia is representing uh, ostensibly, you know, African religion and Jose Indian, excuse me, African heritage, excuse me, African identity, not just African religion. And uh, Jose uh, uh, ostensibly represents Indian identity. But at the same time, they're also recognized as being extremely diverse with racially and, and, and ethnically and, and religiously heterogeneous practitioners and religious traditions. So hmm, I scratched my head and I, and I wondered what a deep look into the processes by which British colonialism and present day political and cultural power relations in the West Indies could reveal about the ways that the, the concept of identity, which after all, defines certain types of people and groups, and that's types in quotations, right? Identity, the job of identity, one could say, is to define certain types of people and groups. And I wonder how the, um, uh, uh, the, this concept could be both a source of oppression and exploitation and a source of empowerment for social justice and equality as it's manifested in concrete cases like Obia and Jose, which are absolutely, I argue, the, the, the kind of, um, uh, what, what, what is it, the sweet spot, if you will, of the intersection of race and religion. So mm -hmm. on an empirical level, empirically, uh, um, you know, eventually my work took me to the colonial criminalization of Obia and Jose, which I argue they share. And it's very, this criminalization's varied permutations over time, you know, that reiterated some of the basic foundations of slavery and indenture in the West Indies. And I also argue in the book that we, even though they're not the same, I am not saying that slavery and indenture are identical. I'm saying they share some really important dimensions uh, around power and inequality uh, connected to British uh, colonialism that really help us understand the criminal, how the role the criminalization plays in actually creating types, right? That actually create identity types. So uh, I was interested in the criminalization of Obia and Jose, uh, but also the creative imagination of those folks who are subject to that criminalization, right? Because there's pushback uh, uh, all throughout history, right? So on a, uh, uh, just to, I, I'm closing now on, on this question. So on a more theoretical level, eventually my work took me to a critique of the enlightenment and post-enlightenment concept of the individual, 
right? So remember, I just said on an empirical level, my work took me to colonial criminalization, right? And its documentation and the way I argue it gave rise to the, these identity types called Obi and Jose. But on a more theoretical level, I'm really interested in the concept of the individual as we inherited from enlightenment and post-enlightenment thinking. And I argue in the book, uh, especially in the end, that, um, uh, and, and with other people, I'm not alone, I would never claim to be uh, alone in this, I argue that, that I, the, the idea of the individual as we have inherited um, is at the heart of the problem of types of persons and groups. And it's what keeps the broader concept of identity sort of ultimately, you could say, more trouble than it's worth, okay? So in the deepest eye, I'm basically exploring across about 300 years, more or less, different instances where Obia and Jose and their, their practice and their treatment reveal what I identify as uh, what I call an Atlantic common sense that keeps certain ways of knowing ourselves, certain ways of knowing ourselves, that's identity, right? Certain ways of knowing ourselves alive and well in both beneficial and destructive ways. And I think there's no uh, end answer to that. So that's the engine that keeps running <laughs> for me and I hope for many others. Thanks for that very detailed response. I think you must have answered three or four of my questions right there. So, I'm sorry, Lean. You said be detailed. I'm no, I, much, much I, I love it. I, I love the detail. Keep it coming, please. It makes my job way easier too. So, um, I just want to dig into to uh some of the um the the stuff that um you would have mentioned um just now, um this um elucidation of um you know this contradiction in the reification of identity is something uh that um definitely comes out in the, the deepest die um i would say to a point where it um throughout um uh the entire book uh you know um whether it's on the um it's well especially on the part of the the colonizers and how they viewed and and saw both um african and indian um peoples right um could could you um speak on that like it's something i um noticed especially in terms of um obia they saw it as something that is nonsense but at the same time held uh so much power they saw the people who practice it as charlatans, but at the same time, they feared them. They saw the objects um, and the rituals as, you know, ha having no meaning, but at the same time, they set to destroy it. You know, in the same way with um, Jose and um, Indians, they saw them as um, credulous, uh, childlike, but at the same time, they were so fearful of them re rebelling and engaging in violence. I, I was wondering if you could speak on that a little bit. Oh, sure, that's a great question. And again, infinitely uh, interesting and important all over the world, because you know, uh, I think many people would agree that you know that's one of the uh, major conundrums of colonialism uh, and and colonial uh, uh, efforts at uh, uh, you know uh, oppression and control is on the one hand. Um, you have uh, in, in, uh, hundreds of years uh, as a Euro-colonial, hundreds of years of ideology 
that uh, uh, um, establishes your superiority in the world, right? Uh, and if you're British, you're better than all of your European uh, uh, comrades. And if you're French, ditto, Spanish, ditto, right? But there's an underlying self-celebration of, uh, of, of perfection, right? right? And there is a hierarchy that's that, you know, at least for the Brits started <laughs> with Britain and men. I, I really want to um, uh, uh, emphasize that it starts with uh, it, it, it's, you know, women, you know, fall out somewhere in the that's a whole nother conversation. But you have an idea, you have this hierarchy of types where, you know, uh, uh, the higher up you go in ascending order, you have um, uh, closer and closer and closer to the civilized being. And then, of course, you have God at the top. And who's the closest, getting closer and closer to God and therefore increasingly civilized. Um, and then, of course, the further down the line you go, uh, uh, you have increasingly savage and barbaric. And as you know, and many most people know, the, there's uh, in the uh, 19th, 18th, particularly 19th century, there are these, you know, uh, ideological gymnastics uh, on the part of colonial thinkers, Euro colonial thinkers. Uh, uh, trying to uh, establish uh, uh, hierarchies uh, of people, whether, you know, gosh, it's, whether it's Linnaeus or Blumenbach or all of these folks um, uh, who are saying, uh, uh, let's, let's categorize the barbarics, let's categorize the savages, let's categorize the civilized, and even within the civilized, we've got gradations, right? And so you have all of this uh, uh, embedded um, uh, 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 certainty, but as you know, certainty is never, you know, a hundred percent. It's never absolute. So at the same time, Euro colonizers, Euro European societies, uh, and their colonial emissaries out into the world were, 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 were hamstrung, you could say, by their own limitations, their own self doubts about their place in the world, because, you know, power is always uh, uh, shaky to one degree or another, but, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, and self-doubt, especially when they encountered civilizations that they were shocked to find so much like themselves. I mean, this goes from when Cortes goes, goes to Tenochtitlan and looks at the Aztec empire and says, holy, you know, expletive deleted. Uh, what am I seeing here to when they uh, when uh, other colonials a little later, uh, uh, not much later, go to India, uh, they, when they Goa or they go uh, to China and they see uh, societies that look more to them like themselves. Right. In terms of being, you know, uh, higher up the developmental chain of, of human evolution. Right. But right. still so that so that kind of rocked their world a little bit and not entirely, but a little. But at the same time. They also, they meaning European societies, Euro colonizers included, also have their own belief systems that are not entirely different in certain ways, in certain ways from those folks who they are labeling and dismissing as inferior. So, for example, witchcraft is a fascinating problem. For European societies, they are steeped in feelings uh, uh, and fears about witchcraft. You know, just think of the, you know, uh, uh, gosh, I'm going to embarrass myself. It's 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 either Hamlet 
or Macbeth. Oh, it's Macbeth. Excuse me. Where, you know, you've got the three witches, toil, toil and trouble. You know, I mean, there's a, 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 a very serious strain of witchcraft belief in European societies. So when they encounter in their uh, 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 Western hemisphere, you know, American, as in the Americas with an S, colonies, um, Ovia, that is uh, African heritage derived, and as I argue in my book, The Deepest Dye, also seriously influenced by South Asian notions of the supernatural and European notions of the supernatural and their own versions of witchcraft. So, at the same, so while they feel contempt for uh, uh, um, th their colonized peoples, and in our case that we're talking about here, African and South Asian or African and Indian people, they're scared to death. So they are torn, and, and, and ideologically, this is a problem. Well, you're always feeling off balance, and that's what I argue in the book, is a part of what forms Atlantic common sense, what I call uh, Atlantic common sense, is uh, in uh, uh, deeply uh, shaped by this constant feeling of uh, being off balance. We're superior, I mean, again, allegedly, according to us, right, us European colonials, we're superior, uh, and yet we have uh, uh, similar kinds of um, uh, uh, characteristics, whether they're admirable, like these uh, uh, sophisticated uh, societies in ancient uh, Mesoamerica or ancient Asia, but at the same time, we're also scared to death of these unseen powers that can wreak malevolent havoc as well as uh, confer benevolent gifts uh, uh, that uh, uh, African heritage and Indian heritage peoples also have. But we are going to call what they have Obia. Obia is born in the New World, and I am not alone. They're wonderful scholars of Obia, both from the Caribbean and from uh, uh, North America and Europe, who have uh, studied this and made this argument as well, and which I build on, but I'm not the originator of this uh, idea that's brilliant, I think, uh, because, you know, I'm building on other people's brilliance in this case. I think, you know, the deepest die has uh, many other original arguments, but this one I take to, uh, 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 because I believe it, that Obia as a thing, and I again, I talk about Heidegger, the philosopher Heidegger's notion of what is a thing uh, in my introduction. Very briefly, very basically, I'm not a philosopher. I don't even read German. But um, <laughs> I, I, the, the creation of Obia, if we could say thing, or we can say an object of scorn and fear and Jose, as a creation of an object of scorn and fear through the British colonial gaze, it happens in the Americas. And it happens, I argue, as a kind of horrible uh, offspring of the pairing of Euro-colonial self-defined superiority, you know, cultural evolutionary human superiority, and yet an awareness that they are very tenuous in their power relations, right? You know, we, 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 you know, they, they are very familiar with slave revolts and all kinds of other pushbacks. And they are aware that some of their own uh, religious and cultural traditions are not so different uh, from those people whom they despise. And so this kind of, again, apparent contradiction is what characterizes 
the West Indian, or we could say the Atlantic world context that I say gave birth, if you can use that expression, to what we know, what became the criminalized Obia and the criminalized Jose. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So we just finished discussing um, all these contradictory characterizations and sentimental attitudes towards Obia and why were they so prominent among colonial authorities. Uh, building on what you said, I remember in chapter two, there's a quotation I have from Bridget Brereton here um, regarding uh, Indians. Soon after, soon after the arrival in Trinidad, Indians acquired a reputation for violence and that a fundamental element of Trinidadian reaction to them was fear, fear of their potential for violence and rebellion. Uh, Canadian Presbyterian Reverend Kenneth Grant remarked, a Frankenstein monster in the colony might one day get out of control. In 1884, Robert Guppy, mayor of San Fernando, a city in South Trinidad, seemingly in reference to Indians, said, an unruly and mutinous spirit has been developed among that class of all people who until recently were noted for quiet and orderly submission to authority. So I, I'm curious, um, why do you think Indians in general and their practice of Jose in particular, why did it provoke so much fear and anxieties among colonial powers? Oh, I'm so, so happy. You can't see me smiling. I'm so happy you asked this question. I was hoping you would because it's really important and it's one of the, uh, it, it, it's at the crux of, what, of, of, of the deepest diet. It's one of my main points. And that is, you know, again, if we're talking about the connection between race and religion and their intersectionality and their being mutually constitutive, which is academic jargon, you could just say mutually shaping um, in uh, Obia and in Jose, um, you really, uh, uh, the, the question becomes then, what is the nature of the racialization of religion and uh, the religionization of race, again, which I unpack in the introduction. But your question, um, uh, uh, Aline, uh, speaks specifically to the racialization of the Indians who came over. And from the, the quotes that you, uh, um, from uh, Bridget uh, uh, Brereton, a brilliant uh, historian, uh, is talking about um, the, the, the kind of climate, uh, uh, the zeitgeist, if you will, uh, of that day. And then you've got some primary sources uh, uh, that are uh, making uh, Kenneth Grant, et cetera. And um, what, uh, what, what's happening is a distinction is being made and, um, uh, and, and, and deployed in, the, uh, in their British West Indian colonies by uh, British colonials between the kind of lofty uh, uh, um, Indian uh, particularly the lofty Hindu who needs to be given some kind of props, if I can use that word, not, not a lot, because Lord knows they're not Christians, you know, and, 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 and they have uh, all of these, you know, allegedly 
um, uh, uh, troubling traditions that, by the way, most you know Europeans never even saw firsthand anyway, even though they're very busy describing them. But you know that's what colonialism does as well fantasizes things into the reality of the spoken and written word, right? But uh, uh, at the same time, you have um, uh, lofty Hindus who are uh, seen by uh, uh, British colonials, uh, British colonialism uh, uh, through that gaze as uh, very erudite. You've got Sanskrit, you've got uh, uh, the Rig Veda, you've got you know, all of these other, the Ramayana, all of these other ancient texts uh, and, 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 and Sanskrit is this ancient written language and a very, very um, um, uh, complex uh, uh, theology, right? Again, all theologies are complex. I will say that again, all theologies are complex, but again, through the British colonial, and I would uh, add, you know, Euro-colonial gaze, certain cosmologies were more complex than others. I mean, in my opinion, you can hardly get more complex than African, uh, uh, Afro-Atlantic uh, cosmologies, Afro-Atlantic religious traditions, massively complex and sophisticated. But again, the racialization process that was imposed by uh, British colonial, uh, the British colonial gaze gave uh, 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 very select groups of their colonized uh, uh, a bit of um, uh, allowance uh, 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 of res- grudging, grudging respect uh, to their uh, 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 cultural and religious identity, right? The fearsome ones, the fearsome Indians that you quoted uh, from my book, uh, uh, that these uh, historians and, 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 and contemporary at the time observers are talking about are racialized by one term that I argue in the book, and that is the word coolie. The coolie laborer is racialized into being comparable to the feared and Le- allegedly, allegedly less developed African people, right? Or African persons, right? So Africans are racialized by uh, uh, British colonial uh, 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 ideologies uh, and racism, let's call it like it is, in particular ways for centuries, right? And then Indians come into the mix and, the, and why I'm tr- what I'm trying to get at, uh, away from Try to get away from this idea that the African and Indian uh, are, are 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 apples and oranges in terms of comparisons. I uh, and that therefore Obia and Jose are apples and oranges in terms of comparisons because in fact they are not. Well, are, am I arguing that Obia and Africans and Jose and Indians are the same? Absolutely not. Never. You can you know it, it takes you two seconds to see that they're not the same. But what I'm trying to get at is their common derivations and common uh, uh, sustainability through the foundations of Euro-colonialism, including uh, notably criminalization and all these contradictions of, you know, existential contradictions, right? Like, like as you as I t- talked about a little bit ago, you know, well, gosh, we're so superior, but then how come we're, are, are, we're so vulnerable? That is we meaning Euro colonials, right? Mm-hmm. And so you have uh, 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 a, a situation where you are, you give grudging respect 
to certain groups who you, you meaning Euro colonials, British colonials, determine our uh, 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 merit, determine merit that uh, grudging uh, uh, allowance, uh, uh, respect is putting it a little much, but you know, but, and then you have your coolie laborers, your coolie laborers who are not the lofty Hindus, they're the kind of hill tribes and the untutored and the unlettered and the ignorant, quote unquote, right? This is all, this is ideology from British colonialism, right? That uh, racialize them as coolies in a way that make them comparable to the feared and wild and underdeveloped, according to, you know, Euro ideology, Africans. Right. And so I argue that um, uh, what what's really uh, uh, one of the common denominators is the racialization of coolies and African laborers. And then later, as you have the development of a, an educated middle class um, uh, 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 populations of African descent in the West Indies, which you do. I mean, they grow and grow and they're, and, you know, and they're so prevalent eventually. But in, in this time period that I'm talking about, uh, in the, that we're, you know, I bring, as you know, the book up until, you know, literally like, you know, 2016 or so, 20, yeah, 2018. But when we're talking about 1818 or 1900, we're talking about um, uh, a you have uh, plantations uh, and even post uh, emancipation indenture plantations where the crux of the issue is labor and un and allegedly unskilled labor, right? All labor, I think, is skilled labor. That's an argument I take. But in, in this a kind of uh, matrix, unskilled labor who are very apt to have uh, uh, um, uh, rebellions and protests and various uh, uh, um, instances of social unrest, a a Africans and Indians, right? So these wild people are, uh, uh, are uh, either Black or African in this parlance of Euro-colonialism, identity categories of types, or they are coolies uh, uh, among Indians, which distinguishes them from the lofty non coolie Indians that, you know, that, that uh, um, uh, uh, British colonials have uh, uh, experience with in India, right? Right. Uh, and, and, and so there's a kind of Atlantic common sense of the coolie versus the lofty Indian from the subcontinent. And what happens is on the indenture plantations, the participants in the Jose um, uh, 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 commemorations, annual commemorations, because it is Muharram in the in the New World, it's uh, uh, are are participated in. Is it's very clearly uh, uh, indicated in in the book and my book, but up by others as well, of course. Um, is a part Jose is uh, is is a, a a kind of commemoration that involves Afro Caribbean people. It involves Chinese Caribbean. It involves Indo Caribbean. It involves more Hindus than Muslims ever. 
right? And that's partly demographics because there were more Hindu indentured Indians who came over just demographically than there were Muslims. The percentages are very different. It's like, gosh, I don't want to be wrong off the top of my head, but I think it's less than 10% Muslim indentured Indians overall. And, uh, and uh, uh, gosh, something, I don't know, you know, 50, 60, 70, whatever percent of Hindus, right? I think you're um, about uh, right. Yeah. 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 Thank you. I'm just doing this off the top of my head, but that's, uh, that's the, that's the arena we're talking. So yes, demographically, there are far fewer Muslim uh, uh, indentured Indians. Um, uh, and so, uh, but also, you know, remember Jose, as in Muharram, in the new old, excuse me, in the old world in India, was heavily influenced by Hindu traditions and non-Hindu, non-Muslim traditions of the uh, of folks who were coming from uh, other uh, other indigenous Indian uh, traditions that are often associated with hill tribes and other folks. But you know, it was a whole. Um, a gorgeous mosaic, to borrow that expression, uh, in India, right? It was never pure in India. Uh, and then it comes over to the Caribbean and then involves Afro-Caribbean people. And so on these indenture plantations, you have an annual commemoration that involves lots of people who are really angry about the situation that they're living in. These are not happy uh, satisfied customers, let me say, right, which was the British colonial line. Well, they're not enslaved, they're, they're indentured, and we're doing them a big favor, uh, and they're grateful, and they're happy, right? No, these were not uh, happy um, uh, situations at all for indentured Indians and the Afro-Caribbean Afro people who are with them and others, uh, and so they're uh, uh, Jose becomes a, a moment of protest. It is absolutely also a commemoration um, uh, and memorialization of uh, Hassan and Hussein, the grandsons of the Prophet Muhammad that, that you have in Muharram. But it, 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 you know, even if it starts out a Shia uh, uh, tradition in what is now present-day Iran, what would have been Persia uh, hundreds of years ago, is... Um, uh, uh, is completely influenced by Shia, uh, excuse me, excuse me, completely influenced by Sunni Islam, which is predominant uh, uh, in, uh, in of the of the Muslims who came over, vastly more uh, uh, Sunni, and all those Hindus, right, right, and so this becomes a very heterogeneous, uh, if very devout and pious, for many uh, Muslims, uh, commemoration, right, and so. This uh, uh, moment of social unrest um, is used as a way to uh, signal on the part of British colonialism, a way to signal the wild coolie who is engaging in all of these protests. And of course, they've got to be Muslim wild coolies because after all, you know, the British are very aware that, that, that Jose is a variation of Muharram. And in fact, in the colonial mm -hmm. documents, they, they will, they will, they go, they flip back and forth uh, in, the, in, the, in the colonial documents. Sometimes they say Jose, sometimes they say Hossein, uh, 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 and sometimes uh, they say Muharram. So they know the, 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 the foundations of this uh, commemoration and who's being commemorated, right? The two martyrs, uh, Hassan and Hussein. Uh, it's the Battle of Karbala in about 680 AD. Uh, when there's the struggles for the, the caliphate, when uh, the Prophet Muhammad uh, passes. 
um, away. And, uh, and, and, but uh, the point being, uh, when you've got un allegedly unskilled laborers and, um, un uh, and often unlettered, yes, they often were uh, not able to read and write, uh, which says nothing about intelligence, as I hope we all know, but in, uh, indeed, many were unable to read and write. So you have unlettered and allegedly unskilled labor, and you uh, have them very angry <laughs> most of the time because there are many rebellions going on, right? Small and large. I, and I document some of these in the book, as other scholars have as well. Um, uh, but uh, you have this kind of perfect storm if you're a British colonizer uh, and their uh, optic, this perfect storm of uh, you've got your, your, you know, your wild Muslims, uh, like, you know, uh, and you've got your wild coolies who are Muslim. They, they, gosh, the ones who are, do, you know, participating in Jose must be a Muslim. And they're obviously coolies because they're coming from the plantations, uh, the sugar plantations. And then you've got them uh, riling up of the Afro-Caribbeans who are also part and parcel of these um, uh, uh, annual commemorations that also serve as protest moments. And then you, we're riling up all the Hindus and God knows, you know, why are they there? You know, the Brits are scratching their heads, you know, uh, but they must be coolies too. So this kind of racialization uh, is one of the fundamental ways that we can understand Jose and Obia uh, as kind of being germinated uh, out of this uh, horrible colonial soup of, 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 of power, uh, uh, of unequal power relations and um, the creation of certain types, those who are the coolies of Jose and those who are the Indians of, as, uh, as I think you were quoting somebody, uh, I don't remember who it is, it's the last quotation, you know, these the mayor of San Fernando, maybe, the, the, the calm, right. peaceable people that we, and I thought to myself, and I think I write in the book, I don't know who he's talking about, because, no, you know, the, 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 these, these people uh, that he's referring to have also engaged in myriad kinds uh, and degrees of social unrest. Yeah, um, his name was Robert Guppy, the, the right. mayor of San Fernando. Yeah. And um, I have another quote by him, and it um, sort of uh, digs into that um, racialization you um, just mentioned um, a few minutes ago, right? And he says um, here, uh, the full quote is that Trinidad had become overrun by a vagrant and lawless element quitting the neighboring islands and working a precarious existence here, and which is always ready to join in popular disturbances, right? right. So, yeah. It seems uh, in this quote, and like uh, many times throughout the books, uh, throughout the book, sorry, the colonizers implied that uh, violent resistance was characterized as having um, what I would say, um, uh, African or Black traits, you know, the people coming from the neighboring islands were predominantly Afro, um, you know, African in origin, right? While submission, subservience, docility, that was characterized as having Indian traits in the mind of colonists, um, though not always. Like, could you comment on this? This is another contradiction that I, I kind of picked up on, and I want to know if um, you did as well. 
Yeah, you know, that's a very good uh, point uh, uh, you're making, and it is indeed uh, yet another of these intriguing and troubling uh, contradictions. Again, it's the, it's the construction of identity types. It's another instance of this problematic where you have, uh, as you point out, all of these um, indentured Indians rebelling and everybody's frightened, everybody, you know, locally, uh, the powers that be locally, the elites, et cetera, are frightened of them. Uh, uh, but at the same time, um, uh, they are uh, characterized as docile and obedient. But what I want to point out to you that we, you know, we have to remember about all social constructions of identity is that they are never in a, none of them is ever in a vacuum. Right. Always, always we are X because we're not Y. And I don't care what identity, ver, you know, uh, dimension that you're uh, uh, talking about. I, I'm, I'll just say for myself, I, you know, or anybody, I am, um, uh, you know, uh, Zoroastrian, which I'm not, I'm Zoroastrian because I'm not Muslim or because I'm not Buddhist, right? I am a female, I, I fit into the category female because I am not male as my society, whatever society that happens to be, as my society dom predominantly characterizes what female is, right? It's always relative to something that one is not, whether it's I'm black because I'm not white. And again, I'm not talking about myself literally. So please don't mm -hmm. anybody think I'm misrepresenting myself, right? Uh, although I am female, <laughs> but um, you know, I, I'm, uh, I'm uh, white or black because I'm not the other one, white or black. Uh, um, uh, uh, and so this relativity, if you will, um, it, you know, it can, is another, I think you could uh, say it's another kind of intersectionality because you can't talk about one without somehow summoning the other, right? It's understood in Trinidad, for example, and in Guyana and in Jamaica and throughout the West Indies, if I say I'm Indian, I'm also saying I'm not African. Or if I'm saying right. I'm African, I'm, I'm saying I'm not, I, I may not be denying that I have Indian uh, uh, in my family or that I have I, uh, African in my family, but I'm telling you I'm African, I'm not Indian or Indian, not African. And so we have a, um, uh, 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 I think, a very obvious example of this relativity or intersectionality where these, these docile Indians that contradict these fear, fearsome Indians, these scary Indians, um, uh, is always in relation to the, uh, the other, you know, British colonial nemesis in their colonies. Who, uh, and, 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 and today, when you're talking about unruly populations, you're not no longer talking about people working uh, enslaved or indentured on plantations, but you're, you are worried about unruly uh, uh, populations and social unrest, right? And so whenever you have that kind of concern, you are going to characterize various types of people in relation to each other. And so the docile Indian is only dot, and I'm using that in quotations, right? 
the docile Indian is only docile in relation to the wild, savage coolie, which are, which are adjectives that I do quote that are used uh, in, even into the 20th century by uh, British colonial observers, right? And uh, and also local elites. I mean, some of the you know, the quotations you know I, I showed that are in the local newspapers, the Guardian, the, you know, the the Argosy, etc. Uh, the Creole, you know, they're clearly mouthpieces for the elites and they they echo some of the same awful um, uh, sentiments that uh, that colonizers themselves, the British out, you know, outside colonizers felt. But um, uh, docility is only in relation to um, uh, dangerousness and that dangerousness can either be the unrest uh, um, um, perpetrated by the so-called coolie or it, it can be perpetrated by the unrest perpetrated by um, restive African heritage uh, communities and populations, right? Le and largely workers. So uh, I think that that's a kind of a solution to uh, what seems like a contradiction because contradictions are, I, I, I approach them like puzzles. They're intriguing, you know, troubling, but intriguing puzzles. And I think this, jigsaw the last piece of this jigsaw puzzle um uh, and it isn't the only way to solve the puzzle but one of the ways to try to understand how do you have docile indians and yet savages running around and that's the words that are used right it's because it's always in relation to who they are allegedly not right and some of those people they're not are worse than they are and some of those people that they are allegedly not are better than they are again according to the discourse of British colonialism. Right. Um, what I think is um, really interesting, um, uh, as you said, um, w during the history of uh, Jose's development, I know, especially as we um, see today, the, the festival, uh, the event as it exists, it sort of denies that binary or, or, or relativity you mentioned, right? It's this incredible mix of um, people of African, Chinese, Indian origin, an incredible mix of um, religion and religious practices from uh, Islam, Hinduism, and so on. It, um, I, I just find that um, is, uh, it kind of goes against that um, sort of um, meta narrative of, of the um the colonizers right and it's sort of like instead of a uh, contradiction we find um maybe like pluralism or a mix of people working together what do you think about that well actually i'm gonna play devil's advocate here with you aleem even though but it is what i think i i don't know that it uh, 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 goes against the, uh, 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 the, the, the grain of, uh, of, of the, the colonial point of view, uh, because as I argue, and again, I argue this in the book, the nation state embraces, eventually embraces Jose uh, as part of its national identity, and, uh, and calms down about Obia. So I list in the book, I don't have to go over it now, but in the introduction, the various countries of the West nation states, if you will, or countries of the West Indies that have taken um, Obia off the, um, the criminal books, right? It is, no, it is decriminalized, right? It's not a problem. So you, you know, if, even if with Obia, it's, there's the, it's, they stop short of embracing it as part of the national heritage. Although in some cases that is the case, certainly in Jamaica, there are some 
uh, uh, voices that would absolutely say this is part of our heritage and in Trinidad and Guyana probably too, but predominantly um, not, not as much as Jose, which certainly in Trinidad and I would uh, say in, in Jamaica as well, even though it's much um, less uh, uh, demographically less uh, uh, visible, but it is, it is participated in every year um, uh, that there is this idea that, um, uh, uh, gosh, I just lost my train of thought. Uh, uh, oh, that they're, sorry, that, um, uh, that uh, you know, we're going to embrace Jose as part of our heritage the diversity is awesome and fabulous, but what what I would argue what happens is that it remains uh, part of the 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 discourse of multiculturalism, and I don't think uh, multicultural and and others have argued this as well, but I certainly mm -hmm. also don't think that multiculturalism is a breakthrough radical new way of, uh, of, uh, of accepting, uh, 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 acknowledging difference and accepting it. I think multiculturalism is a kind of position. Uh, it is a, it is a, you know, an ideological position. I mean, it's better than, uh, uh, you know, you know, ethnic cleansing. I mean, uh, you know, it, it, multiculturalism is a good start is what I'm saying. But it, I think that what happens is the nation state Get, uh, gets to have a rhetorical strategy of the rainbow country that it is, the multicultural tolerance that it has, while at the same time operating politically in very um, uh, 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 oppositional camps. And that's what I said in the beginning when I talked about there are many countries throughout the hemisphere that on the one hand celebrate and acknowledge all of their various kinds of diversity, religious, cultural, racial, linguistic, and yet see themselves as distinctly certain, uh, composed of distinct types. And so I would say in Trinidad, you know, you still have political parties that you know, sometimes like the like the NAR NAR was uh, was a was a, a, um, a an attempt um, uh, at, at 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 combining. But you know, by and large, you still have uh, uh, parties that are based on the the racial boundaries that are an inheritance of uh, of colonial rule. So you know, I think that what multiculturalism as a rhetorical strategy does is it it, it does celebrate. Um, uh, diversity, but in the sense of cultural traditions and religious expression, but leaves the political and economic um, uh, questions uh, and, 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 and political culture, if you will, uh, out, uh, outside of that happy rainbow. Okay. Um, I think, yeah, that definitely um, comes up, I think, um, towards the, the end of the book. Um and, and just to uh, uh, dig into that, um, so uh, where do we go beyond um multiculturalism then? Um, what sort of what do you have any prescriptions or for some sort of radical change that would be um needed to address maybe um the deep seated and chronic inequalities um when it comes to the racialization of religion and the regionalization of race um in the in these um Caribbean countries. Um, oh gosh. I'm sorry, go ahead. 
So no, that's my question. Uh, okay, yeah, uh, um, uh, yeah, a great question and a great question to end on since this is what I end on in the book. I say unequivocally, we cannot let go of uh, the concept of race or uh, you know the concept of religious identity at the moment. Because ironically, again, this may be another contradiction, ironically, this is all we have that in other words, it's a kind of a tautology, but we only have the concept of race, for example, to call out racism. We don't, which is very important to call out racism. So, you know, uh, we, we, until we have another means of, of uh, signaling and pinpointing uh, racism, we cannot just dispense with the concept of race and racial identity, again, because identity is not just a force for uh, uh, oppression, but it can be a force for insp inspired um, uh, uh, social justice progress, right? However, that said, I would, you know, as I argue with the, in the end of the book, what we really need to do is chuck the concept of the individual. I'm not even a big fan of the concept of identity either. I mean, I think that's an, a, a really interesting next thing. If I were a philosopher, uh, I would delve into that. You know, I don't know why we have to have uh, at least the, uh, the, the identities that we've inherited in Western um, uh, 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 epistemology, right? Uh, Western ways of knowing. I don't why we have to know why we have to. I could be, I'd be fine without a gender identity. You call, you can call me they. I mean, you know, I'd be fine without very. But again, we can't get rid of them now. But I think ultimately, I think identity itself, as we know it in the West, as a type producing concept, a human group type producing concept is very problematic. And I think we could start by really examining, uh, as others have called for as well, and as I build in my book, in my in a kind of original way to the subject matter, the concept of the individual. And how what I call it in the book is uh, how I identify it is the rogue individual. And I have a whole discussion of what, you know, the, A, the, indi the individual as the rogue individual feeds into this continuation of, uh, hierarchies uh, uh, of distinction uh, between so-called types, identity types. So my radical utopia is uh, we don't have identity at all at, based on what we know today. Clearly, we have to have some way of knowing each other and knowing ourselves. That's an ex existential condition of humankind, right? But I wish we could, in, in, you know, in the future that I'll, that's long after I'm dead, I wish we would have, uh, you know, a whole different set of precepts for what identities uh, are and how we use them to identify, uh, to know ourselves and to know others. And I hope that uh, they do not include the individual. <laughs> the emphasis on this enlightenment and post-enlightenment, you know, salivating and celebrating over the individual. Well, um, that's uh, very interesting direction um, to go in and I remember reading about it um, near the end of the book this sort of um the solution of the concept of identity um some may say um not feasible uh, what would you um how would you respond to that oh I would say absolutely uh not only not feasible now but important to not eject the uh, uh, con uh, uh, concepts like racial identity, religious identity, gender identity, because as I said, these are the only linguistic and 
you know, conceptual tools that we have to call out uh, racism or religious bigotry or gender and sexuality discrimination, right? So absolutely, it's not just that it's not feasible now, we cannot let go now because this is our toolkit to call out uh, uh, various expressions of oppression. But what I, uh, so what do we do now? Now, I think uh, given that we have to keep these categories, we, I think we have to keep our eye on the prize of what uh, identities can do in the positive in terms of liberating us from our hierarchies of inequality, liberating us from the idea that types in any fashion are lesser or more than other types because these have been ingrained in us and we some really you know kind of automatically think in terms and may, we may if we're woke if i can use that expression in the very positive sense that i use it we might catch ourselves and say oh gosh i don't really want to think in those terms but we, it is a kind of automatic reaction because we are culturally imbued with uh, uh with ways of knowing each other that we have so now i think it's uh, what we have is you know we're stuck with our toolkit we have to be, as I've said a, it's a couple of times now. So I think we want to focus on the liberating towards social justice potential of not seeing our types as in any way hierarchical, if that's, a, that's not a word, in any way ranked, and really continue to, to tackle our most uh, uh, automatic ideas about, well, you know, yeah, everybody's in theory is equal, but, you know, I really prefer this to that. To constantly ask ourselves, why? Why do you prefer this to that? For yourself and, and for your neighbor or your, you know, your son-in-law or whatever. Right. I think that is a fantastic note to end on. So I think we are nearing the end of the interview. There's so much stuff I um, wanted to talk to you about. I think maybe um, we didn't really get into depth when it came to um, elucidating obia and um, digging into the obia and discussing that more. But unfortunately, I think we're out of time. So um, at this point, I'll just... Um, ended off by asking what's next for you uh, are you hoping to build on the ideas that you explored in this book in any way is there any new material that you're currently working on um, that you could share at this point in time oh uh well thank you for asking Aleem and uh again if anybody is interested in learning uh more about uh what I have to say about Obia please feel free to read the book <laughs> because, uh, you know, there's only so much uh, that, uh, you know, and, and you know, the book's, you know, pretty got a lot of stuff in it. And there's only so much we can cover in, 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 a, in one podcast. So please feel free to pursue uh, the book on your own. But to answer, you know, I've um, uh, be became very, very briefly, I promise, became very interested in the whole aspect of criminalization as I was conducting the research for this book. And uh, um, I've taken the criminalization process that starts, you know, in the colonial era and goes into the present uh, to look at um, the carceral state or carceral studies or mass incarceration the prison industrial complex, uh, all of these uh, are, are, are sort of comparable terms uh, in uh, uh, um, uh, the US, but also I'm interested in, in Trinidad, some of these uh, processes uh, uh, the today, 
of, uh, of the, the, uh, the way uh, race uh, and religion and uh, gender also are um, become uh, uh, the, you know, subjects of concern and objects of scrutiny um, uh, uh, under, under uh, carceral conditions, particularly uh, mass incarceration, which of course has a different definition depending on where you're talking about uh, because it, it refers to percentages of populations who are incarcerated and who are particularly targeted. Uh, for uh, incarceration, but I'm uh, very interested in mass incarceration uh, in um, uh, the U.S. and and in uh, uh, the West Indies as well. Oh, I for still one, working on it. Still working on it. Well, when it's done, I for one would be very interested in reading that and maybe even having you on again. We'll oh, see. Gosh. <laughs> Thank you, Aleem. I wish we could have a part two on oh, just on Obia. <laughs> But maybe people will be intrigued to read the book and get more of that. Let's just give, give them a taste and hopefully they'll come, uh, you know, yes. come and find the book. Yes, so um, please let everyone know who's interested. Where can they find a copy of The Deepest Die? Uh, you can find it on uh, the Harvard University Press uh, 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 website and you can find it on Amazon uh, as well. Great. So it's easy. It's easy to get, and and any you know bookstores. You know, it's e it's very easy to get, and I highly recommend it. <laughs> if I can uh, end on that self-serving note, <laughs> I highly recommend it too. I read it myself. It's a fantastic read, an interesting read, and I'm so interested in um uh, reading um more your future work um when it comes out. Thank you, Aline. I appreciate it. And I, again, really appreciate the invitation to talk with you. You asked really very insightful, brilliant questions. It was a pleasure uh, to, 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 to deal with your questions, which were multi-layered. So I blame you and your uh, expertise and brilliance for our time problems. And I really, really uh, appreciate the opportunity to uh, basically to work with you. Well, as insightful as my questions were, uh, your answers were 10 times as brilliant. So I appreciate <laughs> you and your answers. Thank well. you. So, all right, Aisha, thanks so much for the interview. And we'll end it here. Yes, indeed. Take care, my friend. You too.